Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Boom Goddess Podcast Project with your hosts, myself, Dr. Andrea Goldmarks, Jennifer Davis-Page, and Bibi Peters. This podcast aims to ignite inspiration in primetime women by creating a super learning community, a safe space for all women to contribute their voices and visions. For more information on this episode and to learn more, visit us at boomgoddessradio.com. Good day. This is Boom Goddess Podcast, and this is one of your hosts, Jennifer Davis Page. I'm sitting here with my two beautiful co hosts, B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gould, and we welcome all of our listeners today. I think that you'll be fascinated about the topic that we have chosen for today's show. You know, there's no one, not even the least in touch person, that hasn't been affected in some way by the events and discourse over the past year, the past month, and by acceleration over the past week or two. And it just felt like we really couldn't go on without having an in-person conversation that touches on all of this chaos. It's sort of like it started, that feeling began in our intestines or maybe in our heart even. And then it migrated into our brain and we seem to have a hard time uh, letting go of it. So that's why we're here. Yeah, sometimes something doesn't let us go. And as David White mentions in his poem called Sometimes, which we will be referring to through the course of this conversation, sometimes we have questions that just have no right to go away. And I think that's what brought us to choosing this topic today, which is questions that have no right to go away, semicolon, the crisis of chaos. And what chaos? What's happening out there? It feels as though the earth, the planet earth is on fire. Uh, I see it in my eyes where little fires are popping up all over the place, whether it be France or the U.S., just everywhere. And one has to wonder, why is it why are we feeling such an amount of that happening right now at this time or why is there such a quickening of these um tremendous assaults on one another through the planet throughout the planet and they're not little fires these are big fires that have been going on and you know at one point we had um chaos every once in a while but now it seems like every week there's some awful chaos going on in different parts of the world. And these, these terrorists are terrorizing people all over the world. At one point, it was, it was centralized. But now, it seems like the world, they've decided that they're just going to terrorize everyone on the planet. On, on, and every continent is being affected by this. I think that it's probably never really been centralized. I think that, as we were talking earlier, that the extreme connectivity that we have and the technology that enables us to not only connect but to see and and eyewitness report of 
any and every injustice, any and every act of violence, up close and personal, that's that's the big innovation, I think, that has brought it so undeniably home to all of us in a lot of reasons. I mean, in copycat reasons, in mimicking reasons, and in the way we've, you know, we've been um, churning the pot and roiling and boiling the, the waters with with inflammatory rhetoric and um, inflammatory behaviors that um, that that find likely vulnerable people that want to destroy. Well, it is, you know, I, when I looked at the news the other day and they had that crazy extremist that drove that truck down the, the boulevard of one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and I have been on that boulevard three times in my life, walking along the Mediterranean. It could have been me. It could have been, I mean, people... I mean, for some reason or another, you just don't think that those cities, Paris and Nice, are ever going to be hit, that they're, they're going to be so cherished by the world for its beauty that nobody dare um, conduct any kind of, of terror on those boulevards. But yet they have. But I think that's also part of the strategy of terrorism is to do unpredictable and surprising things when you least expect it, when you most expect it, in the places you would expect it, in the places that you wouldn't expect it, like in Orlando or here in Tucson a couple of years ago or in San Bernardino or really nowhere is immune. It seems that we're all trying to grapple with what is right now, what is going on, and we're seeking answers that are making sense to us or that could make possibly sense to to us. And we want to possibly shed some light on our understanding of those fires that are burning. how do these events settle on our skin? How do, how do they how are they making us feel? How do they affect us as individuals? These are the kind of questions that I think of, that I think about. What work, uh, psychological or spiritual, do we need to undergo in order to remain whole, to continue growing, so that we can positively impact the shifts in humanity? I love that you ask it as a question, and it reminds me of a very famous poem by one of our favorite poets, David White. And the last line of the poem is um, about questions that have patiently waited for you, questions that have no right to go away. And it kind of comes to mind, just like what operated in helping us to choose this theme today. It's These questions could not leave either of our minds, and certainly the minds of all the people pretty much that we've spoken to in the past couple of weeks. So, so can you can you read that poem to us? I have it here and it's called Sometimes by David White, W H Y T E. Sometimes if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who would cross a shimmering bed of dry leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. 
requests to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. And I think maybe we are here at that crossroads. Welcome back to our Boom Goddess podcast. Um, Bibi Peters, Jennifer Davis Page, and myself, Dr. Andrea Gould. And we've been raising the question about how do we respond to ourselves when these questions have no right to go away, as David White was saying so eloquently in his poem. And we're all, we all have different questions. I mean, how have the events affected you, our listeners? Like another way of thinking about it is what questions are forming in your own mind or might you be aware that they're conscious or or even less than conscious but becoming more conscious as the heat is building and the chaos and the crisis, chaos and the crisis are progressing. How would you, how would you describe your own internal reaction? You know, are you reacting? Are you distracting? Are you distracting yourself? Are you becoming emotional? Are you making judgments? Are you curious? Or are you going perhaps inside and looking at um, your state of mind and your state of uh, heart um, and uh, learning or expressing or feeling those emotions? Um, how are you personally reacting, Jen? What's going on inside of you? Well, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's capital of Louis. It's the capital of Louisiana, and a s- s- sleepy little town. Nothing ever like, and nothing like this ever happened. Um, I had to make a call because I still have cousins that live there, and I. And as soon as I heard that there had been um, this this shooting. The first thing that you want to say is reach out to your family and make sure that no family members were involved. And, you know, because at that time, no names had been released as to the officers, names of the officers that had been murdered. And so you reach out, I reached out to my family and they assured me every, everything's fine. But everybody was kind of uh, staying in place. They were all staying home because they didn't know if there was going to be any other rounds or if there were other shooters. So, you know, it, it frightens communities. You know, they say that that they were out to kill black and white police officers in Baton Rouge, but, you know, bullets don't know where to go. Anybody, yeah. any innocent person could have been shot during, during that time. Um, it's, it's, it's frightening. It, it is just frightening. We've all been to Dallas. We know what a beautiful city that is. And not since President Kennedy was assassinated 52 years ago has Dallas been on the news like this with with this awful shooting. Um, it makes you feel so sad. It does. You know? and, and, and it also makes you feel, no matter where you live in the country, 
you can't feel safe anymore. You're vulnerable. And, you know, as a New Yorker present um, in New York during 9-11 and having a brother who worked right there at the World Trade Center, I mean, the, um, the, the panic and, I mean, once we experience anything like it, we can, we vibrate with what happened in Paris. We vibrate what happened in Turkey. We vibrate with all of it. And it, it just kicks up the possibility of our really feeling for other people and the, and, and the empathy of that. I mean, we're all vibrating with the whole concentric explosion. And Bibi's got tears in her eyes. What's going on with you, Bibi? Well, thanks for mentioning the word empathy because I think that really that's what's coming up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is so scary and frightening because it can happen, and it has happened, to all of us in one way or another. And so the thing that we really are grieving is that there is no safety. There is no sanctuary. I mean, unless you want to limit your life and and not leave your home. Well, when we were children, not growing up was never something that was ever on our minds. We knew we were going to grow up and become adults. And we thought we would be okay. But there are groups of children right now who don't know if they are gonna grow up. There are signs that I see on the news of, of black children holding up signs saying, please let me grow up. This is awful. This is awful that our children don't know what what's ahead of them. You know, there are t- it, it is, Oprah did a piece some years, years ago uh, in Chicago, and she was interviewing children from the projects of Cabrini Green. And she said, these children have no dreams. And that's what's happened. Our children, black, white, Hispanic, blue, have no dreams. They don't know what's ahead of them. And that really saddens me. It really saddens me. And I think at the same time that there might be so many who have stopped dreaming, there are also those who are inspired to become heroes. and, And when you listen to people's stories, they will tell you about the turning points in their lives, like after 9-11 when they decided to join the army. There's somebody who spoke at the convention last night about that's what happened to him, and he was talking about his father and how his father decided to join the uh, army in World War II. And I remember my own father telling me he was a baseball game in the, at a Yankee game in New York, and when Pearl Harbor occurred, he joined. So. Um, the Coast Guard. So right away, what we get to see is we can either shut down or we can um, be inspired to take some kind of action. And historically, there's always been that inspiration of warrior behavior that gets inspired. But it also inspires other people to take other kinds of destructive actions, like any of the people that, that have been described to us. There's a certain amount of mental mental imbalance um, and it doesn't have to do with intelligence I mean I think most of these people who've carried out these um, heinous acts have been intelligent people but is that, that a tag we put on them because they've done such awful things or um, 
has everybody that's that's gunned down police officers and and uh, black youth and white youth and Hispanic youth in America are they all crazy? Are they? I mean, do we put that mental illness tag on everybody? Was there one thing that perhaps they were saying one day and the next day because of of a shooting, it triggered something that perhaps wouldn't have been triggered if it if the incident hadn't happened. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that there are a lot of things that stir the pot and there's a lot of rhetoric that acts as um, inflammatory strikes of match that inspire, and I'll use that word, inspire and motivate people to commit whatever act they feel is consonant with their belief system. It's important we talk about belief systems because it's beliefs and perceptions that really motivate behavior. Okay, let me get a tissue and we'll be right back. So welcome back. This is B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gold and Jennifer Davis-Page. And we're here here to just talk about the impact that emotionally and otherwise we have felt during the past week or two with all the incidences that are happening throughout the world. And we were talking more more, uh, specifically about empathy. And as we were doing that, I was thinking about Sting's song, Fragile and how that um, sits on my skin and how that it uh, gives me uh, the feelings of empathy to the human race and particularly some uh, facets of our race or certain ethnicities that seem to suffer an unsurmountable amount of pain. Yeah, and an and endless amount of pain and how we can feel with them and yet there are so many that don't have the skill of empathy mm-hmm. that simply stop themselves from experiencing a resonance with what someone else can feel. And I'm not even talking about sympathy. Empathy is really a, a, a number of skills in one, but certainly the ability to see where someone else is, um, experience where they're coming from, and and sometimes to resonate completely um, emotionally with them. I mean, how would we each describe our internal reactions? I mean, can we tune into our feeling just for a moment and tolerate it? See, most people, they'll feel a feeling, it will be very sharp, and we run from it or we react to it. What happens if we sit with it, as in mindfulness, and we, we sit with it and we just hold still for a little while, even just minutes, but to deepen with that sorrow, or to experience what panic feels like and what it inspires us to do, or when we see something, somebody perpetrating a crime against someone we love, I mean, if we deepen into that feeling, sometimes there's a message within our own emotions that can unfold a little bit of the, the mystery that's at the essence of that. We tend to respond very quickly, and I think there's a lot to be learned by deepening 
and paying attention on a deeper level before we start judging and responding and making decisions. I heard a police officer, a female police officer, right after the Dallas shooting, tell her fellow police officers that if you're afraid of people that don't look like you, you need to leave the police force which I thought was a very powerful statement. And she also had tears in her eyes when she said that. And in a country like ours, where there's so many faces, so many faces that are different, this, we have to learn to live together. Well, this brings us to what we were talking about before, which is a belief system. You know, we keep hearing that America was founded on diversity, on multiple ethnicities, and our appreciation of that on the one hand. But we all don't feel that way. There's xenophobia. We are afraid of people that we don't know or faces that we don't recognize. And then these events that are occurring are underlining that very thing because people are then saying, well, I knew I should be afraid of this group, or I knew that this group was uh, uh, was going to alter my life or bring uh, something to me that I'm not um, expecting. So these events reinforce be, right reinforce the demonization. Yes. demonization. But what what makes us fearful? I mean, what I've never felt that. Okay, I I have never felt that. You know, I look at a Chinese woman or man or, or uh, a Mexican or any national, I've never felt any kind of fear like that. I, 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 I think I'm, I'm blessed that I haven't, but I wasn't raised, even though I was raised as, a, as an African-American person, um, I think I was more sheltered than some African-Americans growing up, but I, I, don't ha- I never had those prejudices. And if I don't like you, it's because I don't like you, not because of, of your nationality, your skin color. Well, now we have the influence of upbringing. So my father grew up in New York City in a very homogenized neighborhood of immigrants. And I grew up listening to his stories with exactly that, an appreciation for the diversity, and also really absorbing some of his ethic, which was defender of the underdog, Mm -hmm. if there were underdogs. Mm -hmm. And he was in medicine, and so that kind of fit with being, being a healer. And I absorbed it. I mean, we have to say some of it is the way where, the way our values are transmitted. Well, both my grandfathers in Baton Rouge really protected their grandchildren and their children from a lot that Uh, A lot of things I didn't see um, because they didn't allow us to get on buses. They always drove us everywhere we had to go. They took us. I never drank from a fountain that said for whites only or for coloreds only. I never, because they sheltered us from all of that. Um, And there are children that weren't sheltered from that my age that have very different experiences. Can you talk a little bit about when you were telling us a story yesterday about your own children in Chicago and living where you lived and how in certain ways you couldn't shelter them from injustice or being uh, objects of suspicion and I really with wish, no provocation. And I really wish I could have. We moved 
I moved from New York City in 1979 to uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I was a single mother of three sons. And I um, had a great job in Chicago, and we lived in a great, great space. We lived on Lakeshore Drive, and we were the only African-American family in the building. Um, but there was no there was no racism in the building. I mean, all the people were there, and they were, by and large, older people. It was an old, old hundred-year-old building that that had been redone, and uh, in, a, in a very affluent neighborhood overlooking Lake Michigan. Now, that being said, here I am, coming into this building in this beautiful apartment that I purchased, and with three black young teenagers. How old were they? Well, they were 12, 13, and 15 at the time. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that anything was going I didn't, I didn't move to Chicago frightened that something was going to happen to my children. Well, but, and you had been in New York City. And I had been in New York City, all right? So that wasn't, that wasn't on my radar. But we started experiencing... Um, some very difficult times early on. Uh, for example, um, living in this beautiful ap apartment building, one day my middle son, who was, I guess, 13 at the time, put his key in the door to come into the lobby. Police car stopped and snatched him from the door. Unbelievable. He had key. He had the key in the lock. Snatched him. And he said, what are you doing? I live here. And the police officers called him the N-word and said, you niggers, there's no niggers in this building. Well, they took my son to jail. Why? Because of the color of his skin. And from that time, it became... All the African mother, mothers and fathers were on full alert because you then tell the stories to other parents so that they can be on the lookout and protect their, their sons particularly. And it, it got to a point where all, all summer, this was the summer of 79, all summer there was incidences with black teenage boys by the police. That was 35 years ago things don't seem to have gotten any better. Um, it's a heart-rending story because as I'm, I'm looking at you and, and identifying with being a mother who's working, who's trusting a child to come home from school and, and, and enter their own home, and to, and to find that out is just devastating. It, so, of course, I had to be called. I ha and at the time... I was um, dating a lawyer, and he was very instrumental in helping us through this because he told my children, he said, if, they, if the police ever pull you over again, you tell them that your father is a lawyer. And after that, after they started saying to the police, and they were pulled over many times that, that, that summer, they would start saying that the police would not take them to jail. All right, but what about the children that couldn't say that? There was a time that they were, they were rounding up 
black teenagers and putting them in lineups. All right, innocent black kids. Okay, they would they would go to schools, high schools, and and arrest them and put them in a lineup so that someone could come and possibly identify the the culprit of the crime. But what 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 is that? What is that mentality? What is that mentality? And that was 35 years ago. Um, one Christmas, my oldest son, who was 15 or 16 at the time, told me he wanted a peacoat. Peacoats were very popular. Navy peacoats are very popular. I then. had one of those. Did you have one? I did too. <laughs> and they were warm and they were pretty. So my son said, oh, you know, Mom, I'd like to have a peacoat. And I said, fine. So I bought him a peacoat. Well, that January, he's He's standing at a bus stop on the way home from school, and the police car pulls him up, pulls over, and arrests him. Why? Because a black boy, black teenager with a pea coat, had just hit some older woman over the head, snatched her purse, and ran. Well, my son happened to be three blocks away at another bus stop, and what did they see? They saw a black teenager with a pea coat. And off to jail he went. Um, the woman ha- the woman that's hurt happened to be the mother of a well-known judge in town. So that the, the, the story kept escalating. The woman ultimately died from her injuries, which really, now this becomes a murder. Right. All right. So and my son was at a bus stop trying to get home with a peacoat on. So, to make a, lo- a very long story short, um, we went down to the police station, and of course, um, my lawyer friend got him out. Um, and then weeks went by, weeks went by, because now they're investigating murder. And I'm sitting uh, in my office at Playboy, and I get a call from my son who says there's two police detectives in our house. I let them in because you had to be buzzed in. He had nothing to fear because he didn't do anything. So when they, uh, when they knocked on the door, he let them in and they came into my home. Now he was there by himself, his brothers weren't there. I was at work and he made the call. Well, of course he calls my friend who was a lawyer and he told, the lawyer told the police officers, do not ask him any more questions and get out of her home. And they did. But later in the day, when we went down to the police department and talked to those same detectives that were in my home, they said, well, we knew he didn't do it because of the way he lived. Well, he lived in a great apartment. He had a great room. But guess what? What happens to the children that don't live in a great apartment? who don't have a great room and are just as innocent. Does that mean because they're poor, they're guilty? The whole system just became um, very scary for us. So we had to change our lives a great deal. They didn't take any more buses. I mean, the mothers and fathers start chauffeuring these kids wherever they needed to go. Because they weren't safe on the streets of Chicago. They weren't safe. And at the time, there was a curfew for teenagers in Chicago. So certainly after 6 o'clock or whatever that curfew time was, we had to make sure our kids were not on the street without adult supervision. It was a very difficult time. 
So here the scars. Oh, he are, absolutely. You know, has are, the scars. I mean, we're we're t- we're talking about these scars in the here and now. And, you know, and, and three of us have done a number of, of programs about things that are of interest and topics that are of interest to our age group. But I think that this particular topic is really cutting very close to the bone and really including all kinds of, you know, touching on all kinds of, of fear and of paranoia and of the expecting the unexpected and um, and just the outright injustice of it all. I could very well have been one of the, the many mothers in these major cities of black teenage boys that don't have their children anymore, that were gunned down in the streets of these major cities. I could have been one of those women and I thank God every day that I wasn't. Um, but when we all get together and sit and we talk about them growing up, these are stories they tell. These are stories they tell their children. Right, and this is intergenerational PTSD, post-traumatic stress. And we can, even as a Jewish person, as BB, a Polish person, that the echoes of persecution and prejudice touch all of us. Welcome back to Boom Goddess Podcast. This is Jennifer Davis-Page sitting here with my my friends, B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gould. And, and uh, Andrea, tell us, we talk about PTSD. Can you tell our audience really what PTSD is? You know, well, we really want to avoid, you know, just a clinical definition, but let me say that it's an umbrella term for a wide variety of um, responses to a terrifying event or a stressful event over long periods of time. We use it to describe, of course, of course, we've heard it more in the context of warriors returning from war, seeing the horrors of war, and having recurring images in their mind, and being triggered by those images again and again. But it can, it, it pertains to any one of us that has had either a terrifying experience. Um, or a sustained stress over long periods of time. And it's even across generations. So if you take Holocaust survivors, um, you can get easily triggered by memories and it can affect your behavior ongoing. Somebody who's experienced sexual abuse early in life can easily be diagnosed with PTSD as for whatever reason something current happens, they hear about something, they read something, or an experience is similar enough that that um, that memory gets brought into the present moment and their anxiety increases and their hypervigilance increases. So you have an experience at a train wreck, Jennifer. Exactly, exactly. And what the, happened I was, there? I, I was, I'm, I'm really curious as to know whether there are degrees of PTSD. Oh, sure. I mean, the, let's just say the... Um, the mothers and fathers that have seen their children shot down in the street, 
the children and spouses uh, that have seen their their husbands that are police officers killed in the line of duty. Um, and are there degrees of PTSD? Oh, sure. And the people that were on the street during 9-11, whether they were in the building or outside of the building, the people who witnessed bodies flying mm -hmm. through the air. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, all images and experiences have the ability to trigger a set of responses inside us which are really a review of the terror that was felt. So, yes, matters of degree. But do you get do you get over it? I mean, do you do you live with it until you die? Or, I mean, I know there's medication, I know there's therapy that can probably help, but you never, you never um, forget. Forget it. That's correct. That's correct. You don't forget it. The um, effects can last a lifetime. They can, if you imagine, like in your in your hand, you have a control panel. You be, can begin to turn down the intensity mm -hmm. of the memories, of the bodily reactions, of your physiology, but you don't forget. Mm -hmm. It's not. I mean, unless there's a different kind of trauma that causes amnesia, which we've all heard of, right. and and the the incidents can be forgotten. But it's something that we've become increasingly aware of since the Vietnam War. Before that, it was considered shell shock. And there are so many different varieties of the way it shows up. Um, and again, you know, everybody's got a different reaction. We develop a rationale or a belief system about things. I know plenty of police officers, first responders, who were affected in New York and didn't want to go back to work. Following 9-11. And, um, and didn't go back to work, didn't want to go back to work, and became, in, in many ways, shut in. I mean, anything can be a reminder. The smell of burning flesh. I had a police officer who was a first responder on a plane crash. He never really recovered. I was just recently called to give more information and evidence that he deserved recompense from a bill that provided um, help for first responders that were plagued in this way. So it appears to me that uh, we're looking at why people do certain things, right? And why they commit the atrocities that we have um, witnessed over the past several months. And that PTSD can be one of the possible underlying factors in that behavior. And then we also uh, talked a little bit about what else can can actually trigger that. Is it the identification with a cause that is greater than oneself? There's a lot. There's a lot of lot of things that you're referring to in that in that um, paragraph <laughs> that you just <laughs> spoke. Um, I certainly think that reactivity becomes heightened, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about PTSD. I mean, the vigilance that one has to go through in one's training as a, as, as a warrior, I mean, makes one acutely aware of every single thing that's going on around. That hypervigilance never leaves. Um, reactivity in the nervous system stays so that something that you might say, oh, that's horrible, and what are we going to do about it, can elicit a very quick trigger response in another person 
whose nervous system has become so sensitive that they there's no thought process there's just reaction so that was that's kind of my thought on on part one the other is what are the belief systems that wind up being responsible for people adopting a mindset that basically becomes a cause and maybe a cause for destruction The three of us are sitting here. Welcome back to Boom Goddess Podcast with B.B. Peters, Jen Davis-Page, and myself, Andrea Gould. And we're, we're hanging out with the poem by David White, where he talks about feeling troubled and how we get troubled with questions that refuse to go away. And, and these questions demand that we stop doing what we're doing right now and stop becoming what we're becoming and look at the questions that can make or unmake a life, questions that have no right to go away. I know that each of us has questions that just keep resurfacing. What are yours, Jen? Mine, I was just talking to our our wonderful engineer who happens to be a very young man at the age of 24, Seven. 27 years old, five, five <laughs> years old, and, and asking, telling him that I don't envy him in terms of what's ahead of him with the state of the world right now. We grew up in a time there was turbulence in all, all times, but I don't think that the fear with us growing as young people, I mean, we tackled women's rights, we tackled civil rights, and we tackled some significant issues, and we lived through some very interesting times. Um, but I don't, my concern is, my question is, what do our children and our grandchildren have to look forward to? And I think that mine is uh, not having grandchildren or children, because it's a little bit more self focused and the people that are around me and the question is our heart must close when these incidences occur our heart closes so what do we do uh, whether it be emotionally psychologically spiritually what do we do to open the heart so that we can stay open to um, envisioning and imagining the possibility of this ending of this taking a tie taking a turn uh, and the other question is when will it end I want to know the date and time when will all this end I don't know it's 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 I, I was intrigued by a, sh- a show that was done years ago uh, on Nost- Nostradamus. And um, Nostradamus predicted that we, there, there would be a World War III, and it would be started with a man in, the, in what we're calling it the Middle East now, but he said with a blue turban on, it would be started in the region with a man with a blue turban on. So a lot of Nostradamus's predictions have, have certainly, uh, we've come to know, have come true. And whether he was gifted or, 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 or not, it's not for me to say. But any time a man can predict the future like that, and I do believe that there are people that can, um, 
it it leads me to believe that there is going to be a third world war and we might be in it right now without actually saying this is a third world war. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember in seventh grade social studies the underlying causes of World War One, and I remember the line so clearly the assassination of the Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand, Ferdinand. Ferdinand right mm-hmm. of Austria mm-hmm. and if if that was seen by history as a trigger what would historians looking back on now how many triggers are we living with and i think it's an astute comment that we are living in the middle of what essentially is a, a warlike state and if we borrow from chaos theory for a minute okay mm-hmm. so chaos theory is not particularly political science but when there are so many centers of discord happening simultaneously fires when there are fires going on right and feeding each other so randomly it looks it looks random but i can only imagine that in the physics of it so many different um movements are set in motion it's almost um undeniable that this could lead to a chaos being out of control I mean, really out of control. I mean, we're all saying it every day. Every commentator is like, this is really out of control now. And so your question, Bibi, about what would it take to, at the very least, begin to deal on an individual level with the anxiety, with the need to have it be different? What are the ingredients? What are the skills that we need to to develop as as individual people as as groups of people that might be able to help at least our anxiety at least our feeling of relative safety and of course the community has always been that the tribe has always been that the family has always been that so are there ways that we can create that connection between among each other that can act either as a as a salve or as a preventative or even more as a hotbed of creativity for ways of coping and dealing with these issues and i think that you know given the explosion of the internet and social media and how quickly an event in egypt or in dallas occurs and how quickly the world knows that we would grab on to those tools those remedies those ideas that are fostering peace and love and kindness in as quick a way as that other dan- as that other dangerous part that we grab onto. You know, I see that that the the dark side of our ready connectivity makes room for the utmost in evil, as well as paves the way for the utmost good. I mean, it's it's there for both sides. What side and how do we want to use? that technology for what we want to foster, which is compassion, which is community, which is connectedness. Well, the one thing that I have been so moved by is the the fact that the French people, for example, who have been hit hard for the last couple of months, have they have a resilience that's admirable because they have decided that they're not going to let this terror come into their lives 
true enough, a man shot down people that were just having dinner in a cafe a few months ago in Paris. But a few days later, they were all sitting in an outdoor cafe, having wine and dinner with friends again. Um, One would think that that whole area would just be empty for weeks and weeks and weeks for the fear of, of something like that happening again, and it wasn't. They decided that they were not going to let these madmen um, change the way they live their lives. Well, that, that, I think, has also been the response in almost every case. It was the response in Orlando when they repainted Absolutely. the disco and mm-hmm. they decided to bring that back. It was the response here in Tucson where, you know, even though it was a really, you know, heinous crime that was committed against Gabby Gifford and all kinds of innocent people were killed. I mean, there's shock for a while and then people do refuse and that is a sense of resiliency. But that's why I mentioned chaos theory because it's not like the same event is repeated over and over again in the same place. What's insidious about chaos theory is that everything is um, begins to stimulate a whole other realm of reactions, and we cannot predict where the mayhem is going to strike next. So this is B.B. Peters with uh, Jennifer Davis-Page and Dr. Andrea Gould winding down our discussion and sharing our emotions and feelings about what has been happening in the world and how we have been impacted and asking you questions, our DRF listeners, um, how you're feeling and what kind of actions, small or little, can we take? Yeah, it's the kind of thing that we're left with this feeling of anxiety. We ourselves are all kind of on the alert because every day there's just more reports and it's exposure by the media. And so I think we need to ask, how do we take care of ourselves and one another in this time? I mean, we may not be able to bring a meal to a, a, a family who's experienced a trauma in Baton Rouge. We may not be able to be there for our friends and, 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 and um, associates in other countries. But we may be able to reach out with, with compassion in lots of different ways to people who are in arm's length, because the bottom line is the best antidote to anxiety is action. And really what we're left with, I mean, I think all of us are vibrating with anxiety and uncertainty about what the future is going to hold, whether it's politically or economically, or even safety-wise. So how do we soothe our anxiety? How do we construct at least a culture of um, of compassion? I think for me, one of the simplest answers is not to watch the news as often. <laughs> um, I have a very easy way of tuning out of it. Now, I don't want to be blind to the world by any means at all, but just diminishing the amount of input that comes into my senses is a one way for me to deal with it so I can continue to be open to giving as opposed to shutting down. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really important for all of us to regulate our intake. 
because we all have different thresholds. I mean, we would we would shield our children from watching what's graphic. Even some of the more conscious news reports will shield some of the most graphic. So there's nothing wrong with being well-informed and at the same time um, preventing the effect of bombardment and sensationalism on our nervous systems. Well, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I am a news junkie. And, and and I'm going to admit to being a cable news junkie. And so I do take it in. But you know, it's interesting because the last week or so with all of this, all of these terrible stories coming across, I have shut it down. There are times now that I just turn the television off or to another channel and I don't take it in at all. And, and you're absolutely right. You do have to shut it down to kind of keep sane. I am, um, in this community that we live in here in Tucson, Arizona, we have a wonderful group of women, a network of extraordinary women that Bibi and I have, have um, started a year ago. And these women are, they really are extraordinary women. And, and I'm saying that to say that we are a community, a family community, and we, we're not all best friends, but we do reach out to each other. We help when we can, um, and we help in any way that we can. And I, what I would suggest that in your own communities, it, you don't have to have a group of women. If it's one woman or, or a family that you can uh, help in any way, um, I would suggest that we start with kindness. Care and kindness is what I suggest you start with. Um, it doesn't have to take a lot of your time, but I think it's important for us to heal ourselves, to heal our, our hearts, and to help heal other hearts that perhaps don't know how to heal themselves. And if it's nothing, if it's if it's something as significant as reading a story to a child that has lost a parent, let's just do it. Well, I think it's balancing. I mean, we have to find a balance between our exposure to the horrific and our exposure to the good and the healing, and. It, it, it's where we look for it is, is where we find it. It's being motivated ourselves to create good and to notice good and to publicize good and to do whatever we can to put that um, compensation in the forefront. Each one of us can focus on the good and the beautiful also in our days. We can soothe ourselves and we can soothe others with it. So I think you're right that creating community and connection in the ways that are available to us and keeping balance in our minds and hearts, we're capable of doing that. That is building resilience within our individual selves and within our communities. And what I'd like to do is, um, I'd like the three of us to discuss having having a good story, having a telling a story at the end of all of our shows, a, a short story on a community, uh, on a family, or a person that has done good in the community, and salute them for that. And if you have any stories in your community that you would like us to know about, or you'd like us to talk about on our show, please go to our website and send us um, 
send send us the story that you'd like to talk about. It could be a wild story that just took something your breath away. Something that's dear. Exactly. Something that's, that, that opens the heart. Exactly. And that's really what we're looking for going forward. Thank you so much for being with us or staying with us during this difficult conversation. And we look forward to shifting the balance. We welcome your suggestions. Please visit our website at boomgoddessradio.com. Reach out to us. Use the Contact Us tab. Let us know what you think and what kind of topics you'd like to hear. Thank you for tuning in today. This is Dr. Andrea, Jennifer, and Bibi, your Boom Goddesses, signing off. Each voice of wisdom shares ripples out into our universe and inspires so many others. Namaste. For technical reasons, portions of this program have been pre-recorded. supermarket just better look no further than your neighborhood albertson's you'll find fresher meats fresher produce and lower everyday prices on family favorites stop by the meat department and pick up a family pack of bone-in pork loin chops or boneless skinless chicken breasts from the butcher block your choice just 177 a pound and get new crop arizona grown jumbo cantaloupe only 87 cents each fresher meats sweeter produce lower prices albertson's it's just better for all the things that make a supermarket just better, look no further than your neighborhood Albertsons. You'll find fresher meats, fresher produce, and lower everyday prices on family favorites. Stop by the meat department and pick up a family pack of bone-in pork loin chops or boneless skinless chicken breasts from the butcher block. Your choice, just $1.77 a pound. And get new crop Arizona-grown jumbo cantaloupe, only 87 cents each. Fresher meats, sweeter produce, lower prices. Albertsons, it's just better.